And uh, we're going to go right into the sermon here tonight. 2,000 years ago on this day, Jesus was crucified. And we are here tonight in commemoration of this event. In terms of our faith, it is one of the most important events in terms of world history. It is equal. So I want, what I want to do for you tonight is to show you that this dark day in history did not happen in isolation. And if we try to look at this event as, it's, as if it's a, a freestanding New Testament story only kind of event, we will lose its meaning. In fact, the death of Christ was a near climax in thousands of years of redemptive history and can even actually be further sourced back to the very beginning of our Bibles, the Garden of Eden. What I want to do with you guys today is to briefly trace this story, the crucifixion. How did we get here? How did it get to the point of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being nailed in the most brutal fashion to a piece of wood, dying the death of a low-life criminal? Let's examine this together. My prayer is that when we leave here tonight, you will not only understand how we got here, but that you will also understand why it had to get there. And I pray that the reality of what Jesus Christ submitted himself to on this Good Friday will shake your souls to the core. So let's begin. Leviticus 19.4 says this, Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am Lord your God. Idolatry is the reality of any worship outside of the worship of our creator God. In the Garden of Eden, the idea was this, that God imaged himself in human beings. And since he is the very source of all living things in this universe, human beings had a special and unique role in creation. So God is supremely happy and joyful in and of himself. When he calls himself love, he is indeed love itself. In all times pre-existent, God has been in community with himself within the Trinity. He has always loved. And when we were created, he designed us to feel and to share in things that is found in himself. Love, care, joy, community. But he created us to be dependent on himself and the world he created. We are finite creatures. We would feel things like hunger, thirst, we would need sleep, and so forth. So when this operation was completed, the idea here is that God, according to Genesis 1, saw this human being, this creation. Ooh. I almost want to fix that because that'll be distracting for me. <laughs> There we go. Everything looks good. Okay. So Martin, you got to take care of the Martins, right? Um, yeah, Genesis 1, human beings. Very good. In terms of human flourishing, this is the pinnacle of flourishing. Man and woman together with their creator God in the garden located within Eden. So idolatry was found only when we thought that our life and all of its needs for hunger, thirst, satisfaction, and joy could actually be found outside and separate and away from God. But since we are not sufficient in ourselves, the fact that we are a needy people and we were created in that way, we tried to make the decision of what is good on our own. 
only to discover that in doing so, we would find ourselves dependent on everything else that wasn't God in order to try to find the goodness and the satisfaction that only God could deliver to us. And this effort of ours brought incredible disruption and disharmony to this entire world. There was an order of things beneath God. And when we did what we did, all things were affected in this world. All things evil, all wickedness, all troubles, all injustice that was found in Adam's sin. And we were not alone in our decision-making process of bringing the fall into the world. Satan The accuser, as his name means, he tempted us. He brought death to us, the ultimate result of our striving for independence. He has become the one in which the power of death lies, as scripture tells us. God warned us that death would await, that we would await death if we walked in this path. And God hates death. Ever since we were all by nature, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, children of wrath. For all who think that we are basically good creatures upon our birth, I invite you to come to my house and reserve my two-year-old for just a few minutes, right? And tell me if we are basically good in our nature. He's a sweet, kind boy. He loves to give me kisses and hugs and we wrestle and we fight. You know, he's a great kid. But multiple times a day, you see him walk up to you and he's doing this and he's grinning. Like, what are you hiding, Micah? And what does he do next? He bolts it. Right? He runs away as fast as he possibly can. Many of you have seen him do this even here, right? And I, I run and I catch him, right? And then I grab whatever he's trying to hide, which is usually some kind of really dangerous object that he somehow found. is amazing, right? How he finds this stuff. And he falls on the floor, face down, screaming. I'm sure you've never seen a two-year-old do this, right? Never, ever. But as you see at the beginning, the very beginning, when we're little kids, we don't have to be taught how to do wrong. We just know. It's amazing, right? We just know how to do wrong. Where did they come from? Right? But we are all children of wrath, born with this nature. No human since Adam has been born without this. We all rebel, and like Adam, we all want to run and hide. But after Adam's sin, God communicated to Satan that one day a deliverer would come from Eve's children to crush the head of the serpent. And the serpent would get a good strike on this individual's heel of his foot. That is in Genesis 3, 15. So God's image within us was now distorted. It was still present. It still lingered. We still felt emotion, right? We still feel the need to reverse injustice, right? We still feel the need to take care of the poor and to love them. But when we hurt the poor, when we take advantage of others, when we lie and cheat and steal and hide our actions from others, we are doing the very works of the devil, the one who brought death to us. We are doing deeds of death. And indeed, we by nature are enslaved to this for the entirety of our lives. Satan has us within his grasp and we've bowed down to everything else, looking for God and hoping to find him in his glory in his created world, only to be left sad and empty and lost. Adam and Eve, after their sin, they were exiled from the very presence of God. And this story proceeds with Abraham, right, into Israel, when God chose Abraham in Genesis 12, when he made the covenant with him to bless all families in the earth through his offspring. When he promised to bring his offsprings to a land, he was seeking in some degree to bring back what was lost in Eden, a place where God lived, with, uh, that God identified as being his place, with God ruling and God reigning. It was a very important announcement for humankind. But as we see throughout the history of Israel in the Old Testament, as we see throughout the prophets, 
God's people Israel continually stumbled and fell into idolatry. Idolatry. They kept seeking God and other created things, hoping that they could deliver the peace and the satisfaction that only God can give. Death still reigned over Israel and mankind. God's image was distorted. Israel fell and fell and fell into an endless cycle of idolatry. And soon, like in Eden, Israel was exiled from the promised land, exiled once again from the presence of God. Death still reigned. We kept looking for God and other things, bowing before them, and God once again distanced himself from his people. As time went on, Israel experienced a partial restoration, but it was never a complete one. They returned to the land, only to experience very brief periods of independence. They were mostly always subjects of other vast kingdoms in this world. They were still looking for Eden. They were looking for justice to be delivered to the devil, for all the evil to be reversed in this world. So shalom, as the word means, peace could once again be found just like it was in Eden, but it seemed just outside of their grasp. Hebrews chapter 2, 5 through 8 says this, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. God was weaving, weaving a, a giant, beautiful story in this world as he was going to display something glorious and magnificent and powerful for the rescue of his people. It was a redemptive plan that was going to involve giving this world a perfect glimpse of God's perfection, of, 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 of the perfection of God's image in humanity. He was going to give the world a glimpse of what it truly meant to be a human being as he originally desired it to be. But he knew that humanity in their present state, no man or woman could have done that. All of our natures are simply corrupt, as we just spoke of. They're irreversible according to our own strengths and abilities. It was a plan from God that must involve flesh and bones, as we will see, but a plan that cannot be fulfilled in any finite human being. To reverse all that is wrong in this world requires some sort of supernatural resistance of it and some sort of absorption and payment for it all and ultimately a conquering of it. One major enemy that lies in the way is Satan himself and all of his fallen angels. The obstacles also involve ourselves, our flesh, other sinful human beings, right? There's no easy way to overcome these things, but God knew that if his plan were to be brought about, that it could only be done by himself. He, the author of life, who in all righteousness is against humanity because of their sin, who in justice he could destroy them all for the horrific sins of their God, he took this job upon himself. So he knows the incarnation. God became a human being. He took on flesh and bones. He would subject, subject himself to hunger, to thirst, to sleep. He would submit himself to, to being tired and worn out. He would subject himself to all the limitations of what it would mean to be a human being and all of the while he would fully be God. The union of these two things is indescribable, but it took place. The result 
was a potential for God himself to suffer like we do, to suffer in weakness. The result was for all of the fall of man and its tremendous wickedness to be thrown in his face and for him to actually experience being sinned against, mistreated, misaligned, and to become forever known because of this as the man of sorrows. When he entered this world, he did not stay some kind of hermit, right? When his season for ministry began, he put himself out there in the hands of others. He was befriending those who especially bore the brunt of the fall in sad and dramatic ways. Those who were blind, widows, the poor, disfigured, sick and ill, and even those who were rich by injustice and hated by all. He always seemed to pursue those on the margins of society. For in the margins, we commonly see the fall in full force, often out of no choice of their own. And Jesus was going to use these weak and small and helpless people to begin his restoration plan of this world. He was healing people, preaching good news of salvation for sinners, giving the most wicked and the, and the person the deepest suffering hope. He began attracting massive crowds. And then he began telling his disciples, his followers, that he was going to die. They had no comprehension of this. They understood Jesus' actions and ministry is pointing towards some sort of potential political revolution that would overthrow the Romans and bring in the justice promised so long ago by force. Those kind of revolutionaries don't start saying, hey, I want to die. They don't plan on being dying. They plan on being victorious. But Jesus' plan was different. And it was so, so different that it literally took everyone by utter shock and later utterly shocked the entire world. Hebrews 2 9 through 10 says this. But we see him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The God who became man allowed himself to be arrested by the authorities. He laid himself down before them, silent as before his accusers. As false charges were brought against him, he knew what was coming, but he subjected himself to it. Just as the prophet Isaiah had prophesied 700 years before in chapter 53, verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he not opened his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep before his shears is silent, so he not opened his mouth. He knew why he came to earth. He knew the plan of his father could not be thwarted. The fall of man brought sin and death into this world, and he was going to take it all on his shoulders as a substitute for the very people that originally rebelled against him to pay in full the punishment due for their folly, even though he was perfect and holy in his life. And even in great difficulty, he had joy as he endured the cross. The cross. Now, this is the most shocking part of all. It is not merely this, that the Son of God allowed himself to be murdered. It is not only that the Son of God subjected himself to be the very cause of the reversal of all things in God's renewal plan by taking this payment of sin and death on his soldiers, uh, shoulders, by absorbing the wrath of God, the very God he was in perfect union with and harmony with for all of existence, yes, he allowed himself to be crucified. 
Now, we have to take a moment to understand this. Crucifixion occurred innumerable, innumerable times in ancient history. We see versions of crucifixion as early as the Greek tragedy Prometheus and even before Imogen Hesiod. But in, as researchers have sought to understand crucifixion more and more, the more they examined ancient sources, they learned this. Very few ever wrote about crucifixion. In fact, it was very seldom spoken of. You can probably place on a few dozen pages, if not less, of all the instances ancient writers wrote about crucifixion. And do you know where the most descriptive and longest accounts of crucifixion is found in the ancient world? The Bible, the four Gospels. It was such a horrific thing that the very word crucifixion was considered on part with a curse word. Vero, who was a contemporary of the infamous Roman philosopher Cicero, he had this to say. To say the word pleasure, right, pleasure is gentle on the ears, but to say cross is harsh. The harshness of the latter word matches the pain brought on by the cross. And Cicero himself once said this, how grievous a thing it is to be disgraced by a public court. How grievous to suffer a fine. How grievous to suffer banishment. But the executioner, the veiling of the head, and the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. In other words, don't talk about this. Thousands of people were crucified in ancient times, innumerable. But Cicero here says, it's so disgusting, don't talk about it. Your ears aren't even fit to hear about it. There were very few types of people that were, well, there were a few types of people that were commonly crucified in this time. It was the poorest of the poor who were caught stealing or robbing or in criminal activity. Political dissidents who rebelled against Rome and any local Roman authorities. Slaves who had rebelled against their masters. Crucifixion thus was always done in order to make an example of the offender. It was always done in public places for many to see. And the idea was to place a sign above their heads, which would kind of inform people the who and the why of the crucifixion. And it was a statement above all. Don't do what these people did, or you may find yourself also on a cross. Those who were crucified were traditionally flogged with a tool that had many strings attached to it, and metal hooks in which would be flung at the victim the result was literally tearing pieces of their body off of them with every whip. And after this flogging would take place, we learned that in Jesus' instance, he had a crown of mockery placed, made of thorns placed on his head. He was forced to carry his own cross, something that did not normally take place. These crosses would have been used and reused, having the stained blood of past victims, as well as being very rough and unhewn against his raw Flesh, and as we, he was forced to carry this cross, a crowd of people looking on for entertainment. This was also a form of entertainment for Roman citizens to see these people being crucified and to mock them. Right? Matthew recounts this. They were hurling insults and mockery at Jesus. They would have been watching this poor, bloodied man stumble along the road carrying his own instrument of death. It was then proceeded to take thick railroad spikes and pierced them through the hands or the wrists. They gave him a tiny little piece of wood for his feet to be placed on, and he would have a spike hammered through his feet also. The death was usually terribly long. Traditionally, the victims would be completely without any clothing upon the cross, and this was more than likely the case for Jesus. The way of death usually occurred from asphyxiation, as a hanging on the arms would prevent the crucified individual from being able to breathe 
unless he pulled himself up on the cross, putting pressure on those nailed hands, causing tremendous pain. And the bodies, once they were done, they, they have very few bodies of, as evidence of crucifixion because they would just leave him there for the wild dogs to have a feast on. It was a horrific event. Absolutely horrific. And I hope you get the reality of what we we're talking about here. And think about this. Over the weekend, people came back saying, Let's worship this guy who was just crucified. To claim in the Roman Empire that the object of worship was a crucified man would have been complete, utter nonsense to anyone and to everyone. If you wanted to create and make up some religion, it would surely not be via a claim that your God was killed on the cross. To begin with, in pagan mythology, gods did not die. They may suffer to some extent, but they cannot die. Therefore, the story of a suffering God who died was utter nonsense to the Romans, and it was incredibly offensive to the Jews. Deuteronomy actually said in Law of Moses in chapter 21, 23, anyone who was hung on a tree was cursed by God. And therefore, Paul clearly points this out. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to the Greeks, to the Gentiles. They actually discovered a very crude drawing, which was really graffiti, graffiti, a type of graffiti, on a wall of a room in Palatine Hill in Rome. So far, they say, it is the earliest drawing of Jesus ever drawn by anyone that has been found, dating back to about 200 AD or so. So I have a picture of it on the back here. We can pull up that picture. It's a little hard to see, so, but that's the actual picture. If you go to the next one, you'll see the clear image of it. The inscription is in very crude Greek writing. It reads this, Alexamenos worships his God. As you can see, Jesus here is depicted with the head of a donkey, which donkeys also have a certain and specific uh, obscenity word attached to it that I won't repeat from this pulpit. This was how, for the first few centuries, the world viewed Jesus Christ. It was nothing but a joke to them, a joke. This is your God, church. This is your all-glorious God, the creator of the universe, who humbled himself to such a lowly spot to be known like this. But it was necessary due to the horrendous nature of our sin. Such a brutal death was necessary because sin is such an offense against a holy God. But he knew that by absorbing God's wrath, by dying in such the way he did, he would rightly pay for all of God's wrath against his people. His body became the very curtain which was torn in two, opening access to God once again. The hostility caused by sin is removed. Now, I don't know how this works, but when Jesus breathed his last on that cross and cried, it is finished, there's a divine mystery attached to his death. Jesus once said this in John chapter 10. He said, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Nobody takes it from me, but I lay down in my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. The gospel speak of Jesus giving up his spirit. It wasn't just a simple, regular death. But Jesus was the only human being who was able to actually somehow know when the time of his departure was to come. And he cried with a loud voice, it is finished. And he knew his job was complete. And he willingly, out of his own will, had to subject himself to death. If someone in those days wanted to claim divinity, they would have suffered, suffered like that only to pull themselves down from it and prove that they were some sort of demigod. But Jesus voluntarily gives himself over to death. He dies, breathing his last, knowing it was time to give up his spirit. So church, 
as we conclude on this Good Friday, you must know the love of God is shown by the cross. Just seven days ago, Jesus had entered Jerusalem in glory as the crowds bowed to him. And just a week later, we find these same crowds condemning him to the cross. He identified himself with the lowliest and the filthiest of society by dying the death he did. God chose the most incredibly obscene death to be the very foundation of the message of Christianity to a world that would surely hear it and say, what are you talking about? Your God was crucified? You are insane. But in doing so, he puts you and I to the test if you're a Christian here tonight. Are you willing yourself to identify with this man who has a, was put a donkey head on to be completely mocked all throughout the early world? Are you willing to identify with this man? The message of the cross does not at all contain the same gravity and absurdity that it did in those early days, especially in our Western world. It is nothing now but a nice pendant to wear in the necklace, right? But the gospel of Jesus is still very scandalous for the ears of those today. Are you willing to identify with him in the midst of such a time as we are alive today and say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I worship this man who was condemned to such a gruesome death. And are not only some kind of mere mental assent when we talk about identification, but you, are you willing, as Paul said, to be so united with Christ and his death that you can see his death as your death, that you can see his bloody death and say, because he died for me, because I realized that he, was rede that he redeemed me from sin and brought direct access by his Holy Spirit to God the Father once again, anything in this world and in myself that may keep me from living in this reality must be put to death. All of my selfishness, all of my idolatry, all of my desire for independence, all of my desire to be happy and to be free, to do whatever I want to do and do whatever decisions I want to make on my own, all of those things must be put to death. They have been removed by the death of Christ. They have been nailed to the cross. And now I live only for Jesus and for him alone, for the glory of God, by the power and help of the Holy Spirit. I want to close with this verse one of the most tremendous verses in all of Scripture, Galatians 2, verse 20. I want to read this for you to hear these words of Paul and call the, um, the worship tea to come forth. I have been crucified with Christ. Listen to what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as um, we hear this, this message, Lord, we, we see the reality of the cross. I pray for this church so we can identify with you and your death. By, as Paul said, dying every day in order that we may live in you. Lord, thank you for taking such a message of folly and showing the world that you are indeed real. You, the world was upside down through this ridiculous message of a crucified man coming back to life and giving hope to mankind. That only could be true if it was true. So God, um, make this uh, through your spirit so, so real to us as we close our service today. We pray this in your name. Amen.